0: It's Wednesday, June the 1st, 2022, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Institution Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today. I'm glad to announce that I'm joined by our usual suspects, three wise men we jokingly refer to as the Goodfellows. That would be the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, and the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. Now, one thing you should know this is our last uh, Goodfellows episode for the season. We're going on something of a summer hiatus, so we had to figure out how to end the show on a high note. And for Goodfellows, there is no higher note than the guest we have today. She needs no introduction, but she gets one anyway. That is the director of the Hoover Institution, former Secretary of State, former National Security Advisor, Condoleezza Rice. Hello, Condi.
1: There we go. Hello, Bill. How are you?
0: <laughs> Smooth. Yeah. <laughs> and away we go. Kandi, I don't know if you had a chance to see our latest episode of Goodfellows. Victor Davis Hanson was the guest and the conversation was, Neil, what adjective would you use for that conversation?
2: Animated. Thoughtful.
0: Thoughtful. I was well, going to say harmonious.
2: Harmonious.
3: we <laughs> <laughs> not the hey, Ukrainians and the, the Russians. <laughs> of it it, man. I mean,
4: that was nothing.
2: Harmonious, <laughs> but it was monious, but more acrimonious than harmonious.
4: The, uh, we've been having a long-running, respectful, thoughtful debate on a very hard issue of where U.S. and, and Western strategy should go regarding Ukraine, and I think we're listening to each other and learning from each other, but there's lots more to talk about, and that's why I'm particularly delighted uh, to have Condi here. But I'm, I don't want to usurp Bill's job here. Tee okay. it up, Bill. Let's go.
0: Okay, so Connie, I was going to read you three passages from uh, the president's op-ed last night in the New York Times that I trust you read, but I don't want to chew up the scenery here. Uh, let's go in a different direction. Uh, this war began on February the twenty-fourth. Friday the third marks one hundred days. We see reports Russians are making advances in the east. They are also hemorrhaging both weapons and manpower. Ukraine is getting weapons. They want more weapons. Where is this going? What is the what is the conclusion going to look like, Connie?
1: Well, I think this is gonna go on for a while, but but let's start with the very basics here. We cannot live in a world in which a big power uses old style military force to decide to extinguish its smaller neighbor. That's what this war is about. It's about the rules of the game. Do we really wanna live in a world uh, where it really is just the mightiest. And if you think about poor Ukraine, Ukraine actually signed uh, an agreement uh, in, in in 1994 that they were going to be, have their territorial uh, integrity uh, guaranteed if they gave up their nuclear weapons. And by the way, they had sufficient numbers of them because they were the weapons of the Soviet Union. So they give it up, they play by the rules, they have democratic elections, uh, they move closer to the West because that's where the people of Ukraine want to be. And what do they get in return? They get a full-scale invasion that looks like 1938, 1939. And so the world simply can't live with that. And the United States is the most powerful country in the world. Can't live with that. Just imagine what that would say to every other dictator in the world about uh, just use your military force as you will, uh, destroy your, your small neighbor. And, and by the way, I know Vladimir Putin well. And uh, he used to say to us, well, Ukraine is a made up country. Right. Just think about that. It's, it's not actually a country with its own history and its own language and its own, uh, its own traditions when of course Ukraine has all of those. So this is a matter of principle. Sometimes you have to fight for principle. We're fortunate that the Ukrainians are willing to fight. They're just asking for our assistance. They're not asking for American troops on the ground. They're not asking for the United States to uh, pay blood and treasure. They're just asking us to support them. We ought to do everything we can to support them.
4: Uh, Maybe I'll chime in on the hawk side and then, And uh, Neil can chime in on the, and on the Dove side, and that's where we've been. And, and HR, the one who actually knows how military affairs work, <laughs> can tell us how a tank runs. Uh, I, I see the, uh, the um, historical analogy. Uh, first of all, invading each other has been going on since, I don't know, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, the Visigoths. And, and I thought we were over with that, you're right. Um, The Saddam Hussein invasion of Kuwait struck me as as a useful analogy, or maybe uh, Maggie Thatcher and and the invasion of Argentina, Um, uh, Bush one's response was this shall not stand, period, Uh, and we're going to roll it back to the border, we're not going to, it's not about regime change. Uh, We roll it back to the border because that's not how we do things anymore. Now, that was more than just, we'll give the plucky Kuwaitis some weapons and have a long war while this drags on. Uh, We actually, we and the West went in. And we've been talking about ending this war. I think HR could end, end this war in about three weeks uh, if given the, uh, the material to do it. Um, so just, just why we're, you know, we're fine to let the Ukrainians do it so long as, as they're doing okay. But there, I think there will come the question, well, what if they're not doing okay? What if they need heavier weapons that might actually strike inside of Russia? We've been, we've been debating that. Now the counter is that, of course, uh, Saddam Hussein didn't have nuclear weapons uh, and, uh, and Vladimir Putin does. But, uh, and that's, I think our discussion has been, Neil has been especially eloquent on the dangers of escalation. Um, But the counter to that is, look, we know how to deter nuclear and and other escalation. One foot inside of Poland triggers a NATO reaction, a a nuclear triggers all all the sorts of things that make it, and fairly clear that Russia doesn't wanna go there. They may talk about it, but they're not going there. So I think that would be the Hawk point of view. Uh, I don't know if we wanna call it Hawk, exactly what you said, this shall not stand. And that means every Russian foot has but has to be out of exactly what we promised, the territorial integrity. This is our kind of last chance to make the word of the United States and the West count after lines in the sand, after uh, giving up on the 1994 and 2014, after abandoning the Kurds, after God knows how many other things. And and, uh, we we got it, that should be the strategic goal, not overthrowing Russia, not weakening Russia, not overthrowing Vladimir Putin, but roll it back to the border and use a conventional, use our standard tools of deterrence to deter uh, an escalation. Um, so that's even a little stronger than where you went, um, but maybe Neil uh, I don't know who wants to go next. Um, look
0: I'd like, I'd like to go to Neil next and Neil let, let me read to you uh, paragraph nine from what the president wrote in the New York Times quote, <laughs> "I will not pressure the Ukrainian government in private or public to make any territorial concessions. it would be wrong and contrary to well-settled principles to do so." This is a segue into Henry Kissinger, Neil. Uh, You are a resident Kissinger whisperer. You're working on your second installment of his biography. You talked to the great man. And you were at Davos when he spoke to the World Economic Forum and immediate shorthand that got translated as Henry Kissinger suggesting land for peace. So this would be a good chance to, I think, explain exactly what Secretary Kissinger's thinking is. And as we have the 66th Secretary of State in our company, her thoughts on what the 56th Secretary of State had to say.
2: I was amazed at the... Press coverage of what Henry Kissinger said at at Davos uh, last week uh, because it seemed entirely at odds with uh, the words that he used. Uh, The headlines were essentially Kissinger urges uh, Ukrainians to give away territory. Uh, President Zelensky presumably read those headlines rather than uh, studying Kissinger's remarks and accused him of. Uh, appeasement, uh, mentioning the dread date 1938, as if uh, Henry Kissinger needs a lesson about uh, Munich. 1938 was, of course, uh, the year when his uh, family left uh, Germany uh, and moved to the United States. If you actually go back to what uh, Kissinger said, he said three things. First, he pointed out, uh, not uh, quite as assertively as he might have, that in 2014, he wrote a piece at the time of the first Russian uh, incursion into Ukraine warning that if uh, we persisted with the idea that Ukraine might ultimately join NATO, that would likely lead to conflict and that a better solution would be uh, for Ukraine to be a neutral state with uh, guarantees. And And I think uh, he has a right to say, I told you so at this point, because we continue to talk about NATO membership without ever showing any sign of delivering it. And I think that's part of the reason uh, that we've uh, ended up in this situation, part of the reason I stress. The second thing he said was the most uncontroversial thing of all, that there needs to be a peace. The war can't go on indefinitely. It's a hugely disruptive war and not just for Eastern Europe. And that that peace needs to be based on the status quo ante. Now, I wonder if journalists don't study Latin anymore because uh, the status quo antebellum means the situation uh, before the war. Now, that's a, a, a critical issue because it seems to me what we're really implicitly talking about is which borders of Ukraine are we seeking uh, to restore if it's the borders as they were on the eve of the invasion February the 24th That is a very different thing from the restoration of the borders of Ukraine prior to 2014 because that would include uh, restoring Crimea uh, as well as parts of Donetsk and Luhansk to Ukraine. Now Zelensky has on multiple occasions said that that's not actually what he's aiming at, that the borders pre-February 24th will suffice. So quite why anybody was attacking Kissinger on that score, I can't imagine uh, if Zelensky himself would accept a return to pre-February 24th. And the third thing that Kissinger said, which got almost no attention, was that we have to see this conflict in a broader global perspective. And we have to recognize that a much bigger risk than anything we currently see is actually uh, for the United States and China to end up in a conflict. That didn't get any coverage at all, but I think it's right to see this, not just in the context of, US, uh, of the relationship between the U.S. and Russia, but in a broader context, something along the lines of what I've called Cold War II.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I think that Neil is right. People didn't read what Henry said, and I've actually, Talk to him about this. And uh so I I really do think that he was misrepresented in a sense. And we can we can forgive Zelensky, he's a bit busy, so maybe he only had time to read the headlines. But uh but let me just take the points. Uh first of all, on the question of US China, no doubt it's uh that's the the conflict of the century, that's the one that uh, both has to be avoided, but yet. Uh, in a way that uh, keeps China from uh, exercising uh, dominion as it might wish to over the Indo-Pacific. So undoubtedly that's that's key. But one thing that I sometimes find odd as somebody who's been in, in uh, that chair is that people want to choose between the conflicts, right? This one's more important than that one. There's an interaction between them. So what happens with Vladimir Putin will certainly inform Xi Jinping as he goes forward. And so if you really do believe that the US-China conflict is the conflict of the century, so to speak, then you wanna make sure that Vladimir Putin does not win. And so the uh, those who say, well, we really ought to be thinking about China. No, you really ought to be thinking about the messages that Xi Jinping might take <clears throat> if, if, uh, if Putin were to be successful. Uh, I just want to take on this, this question of land uh, for peace. Look, at some point uh, there will be some kind of settlement. Uh, I was secretary when Georgia uh, was invaded by uh, the Russians. Uh, maybe one thing that's not quite understood is the Russians kind of ended up back where they were in Abkhazia and Ossetia where somebody stupidly had decided there should be Russian peacekeepers in Abkhazia and Ossetia before that war. Uh, But they didn't take the capital Tbilisi. They didn't overthrow the Sakashvili government. And in a sense that's already been achieved in this war in Ukraine. But what we have to say, and I was glad to see the president say it, is that uh, this has to be Ukraine's decision. Uh, We have no right to tell the Ukrainians what the war aim is here, given the atrocities that they have suffered given uh, the boldness of the Russian assault, given that I think the Russians intended to take Kyiv and overthrow the Zelensky government. It has to be Ukraine's decision. Um, I watch as the Russians are being successful, quote unquote, in the East. I'm not surprised. Supply lines are shorter. Maybe HR can speak to this. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not at all surprised that they can do things in the East that they couldn't do uh, in in and around Kyiv or Kharkiv. But we, our job is to put the Ukrainians in the best possible position when the peace talks start. And so if we think about that as the strategy, then that's a coordinated discussion with the Ukrainians. And I want to say just one fine thing, final thing about this NATO issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a matter of principle here too, that NATO has a policy that it is open to any democracy in Europe. And to say to people who have suffered under Soviet oppression for 70 years, oh, by the way, we'll just say that you're outside of the NATO, uh, out of the, 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 it sounds a bit like Acheson and South Korea. It invites a problem. And so uh, I can also tell you that I spent a lot of time with Vladimir Putin, and not until issues of whether we would put missile defenses in, um, in, in Eastern Europe, not until that moment, did he ever mention NATO expansion, right? If actually this had been about NATO and Russian uh, concerns about their security, don't you think he might've brought it up with George W. Bush or with me? He didn't. That's an excuse. This is about the reconstruction of the Russian empire. That's what this is about. And those who keep citing NATO are, read, are just, with all due respect, Neil, reading right into the Putin uh, now redefinition of what the issue was. Because having talked to Putin a lot about this, the reason Ukraine is a made-up country is because there's no Russian empire without Ukraine. The reason that he uh, cites uh, uh, the 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 Russians, the 25 uh, million Russians who are outside of Mother Russia is because this is about the Russian empire. And so when we begin to understand that, we will understand why the Poles and the Czechs and the Balts wanted to be in NATO mm-hmm. because they knew that that would be a deterrent to Putin. And unfortunately, uh, Ukraine is outside of that uh, that uh, zone of protection, and so they were easy pickings.
2: Ma- may, I, would... may I respond before we go to HR? Um, okay. I, I don't think we really disagree, Condi. For, first of all, I, I was trying to make sure we all understood what Henry Kissinger had I, said. And I completely was. agree with you about uh, that. On the Russian Empire, I, I'm entirely with you. That was exactly my argument back on January the 2nd when I said war was coming. I think the problem with uh, the whole discussion about Ukraine and NATO was that uh, U- Ukraine was going to become a member of NATO, but never was the sort of uh, the, the scheduled date. And and that was the worst possible position to be in for Ukraine, to have the possibility, but never the reality of NATO membership. I think if we'd followed through, uh, then I think we would be in a very different place. So I, I think that's that's the critical problem. Uh, notice, of course, this has backfired on Putin in ways that I can't imagine he foresaw with the prospect now of Finland and Sweden joining NATO, NATO will actually be larger uh, as a result of of his action. Uh, But but I I sense that there's another point we should be focusing on here. I welcome uh, Joe Biden's article in The New York Times because it's clarified a number of things that were not clear when uh, we last discussed this. It wasn't clear when we last discussed this uh, that the United States uh, was not aiming to weaken Russia as a goal of uh, our support for Ukraine. It wasn't clear that the United States wasn't aiming at regime change in Russia. So Biden's explicitly taken a couple of things off the table that got onto the table as a result of, I think, some rather casual talk Uh, in the early phase uh, of the war. He's made it clear, too, that he doesn't want to equip uh, the Ukrainians so that they can attack Russian territory. And that's a really extremely important distinction. Some of this gets down into the minutiae of weapon systems, but I think even a lay reader can get there's a difference between using Western weapons, mainly American weapons, to get the Russians uh, back uh, into uh, the, the, the territory they controlled and February the 23rd, but we don't want uh, US weapons to be used to to hit Russian targets, even although there are certainly Ukrainians who would like to be able to do that. So I think the New York Times piece that just came out is a really welcome clarification of what the United States is trying to achieve. And it's not something that I disagree with. What I disagreed with was, was some of the things that were being said earlier on. When Lloyd Austin talks about weakening Russia as a goal, when Biden himself, rather, I thought recklessly said in Warsaw that he wanted uh, to see Putin removed from power.
3: You know, I just like maybe we could uh, take a conversation to what do we do now, and then, and then to to Henry Kissinger's third point that Neil summarized, which is okay. What are the what are the global implications? And I I think what we have to do now is do everything that we will do, at, even as, as this gets worse. Right. I wish we had. You know, it, before February 23rd, February 24th, provided the kind of weapon systems that might have deterred the war in the first place. And I think the president still can't shake this. I mean, this desire, I guess, to talk about everything we're not going to do. We're not going to provide weapons with this range. We're not going to do, you know, the, what is that? But he keeps doing more, which is good. But I think just stop talking about what he's not going to do and elevate this, the discussion beyond specific weapon systems and talk about the capabilities. How about giving the Ukrainians, the capability to ensure that russia can no longer commit mass murder of innocent people by bombarding residential areas and now you know you need a whole range of capabilities and you need long-range rockets for counter-battery fire and you need radars and you need drones and you need fill in the blank so i think we should just elevate the conversation to what we're trying to achieve operationally uh, and, and the kind of weapon systems that, that the ukrainians need to, to achieve those operational objectives how about taking back you know, uh, control of their coastline, right? So, so that so that they're not choked out economically, uh, and and the Russians aren't able to hold the world hostage uh, with a food crisis, for for example. So I think we ought to talk at a higher level about about what to, what to do next. And then from you know from the implications, I think there are three really big implications that there hasn't been enough discussion about. And and, and those implications are in the area of defense, certainly. I, I think we have to. We, we have to ramp up our defense capabilities because we, really we've been operating for a number of years under the assumption we can deal with one crisis at a time. Now we know that's not the case. And we know that China's really orders of magnitude buildup of their military that we're behind. So, so what are the implications for our defense and collective defense? What are some of the new capabilities we need, but also the capacity of our, of our armed forces to, to rest, help restore peace uh, and, and then to preserve it through deterrence by denial? The second big lesson has got to be energy security. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the, it's quite clear now. It is a, it is a mistake to give an authoritarian regime coercive power over your economy through dependence on on their hydrocarbon exports. Okay, so what are we doing about that? We're not ramping up U.S. production and exports to make up for the shortage in the in the, in the global market. We're not adjusting our approach to, uh, to to global warming and CO2 emissions by ensuring that there's a bridge in place with other with other already reliable forms of energy, like shifting to natural gas or or ramping up nuclear uh, power, for for example. So so energy policy and the integration of energy policy with national security and CO2 efforts to reduce CO2. I think that's well overdue. And then the third topic I thought we we uh, we might discuss is just supply chain resilience. You know, and 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 the recognition that we have become over reliant on supply chains that have a single point of failure china <laughs> and we see that from the uh, from the russian example and the rending uh, of trade and commerce with, with russia because of geostrategic risk and i think that geostrategic risk is way undervalued vis-a-vis china uh but but also I, I think we see that with china's own policies you know the zero COVID and lockdown and 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 the shortages that that has created and everything from you know microelectronics to batteries to you know film fill in the blank so i i just what do you think condi are the long-term implications what are you thinking that we must do to to sort of satisfy, I think the the, the uh, you know the quite appropriate observation by uh, by Secretary Kissinger that hey, this has global implications.
1: Right. Well, I would I would cite the three that you did, and let me just say one word about energy security. Uh, the truth of the matter is that I don't think anybody really believes that we're going to be carbon neutral by twenty fifty which means that hydrocarbons are gonna be a part of our future for a long time to come. I would rather those hydrocarbons come from the North American platform while we're making the transition, Canada to Mexico with the United States in between, rather than Iran, Saudi Arabia, or uh, or Russia. So I think, Energy policy really does need to be rethought, and and you know we've been doing a lot of work at Hoover on uh, energy policy on climate change. Nobody says uh, that you should for that you shouldn't worry about the implications for environmental sustainability. It's uh, it's just a matter of. Doing it in a way that doesn't make energy security, your energy security, dependent on uh, unreliable authoritarians in the meantime. And so I just wanted to underscore that point. I'd even take it one step above. And I really think we're now questioning uh, what I was a very big proponent of, which is the kind of integrationist, globalist narrative about just kind of one world out there, particularly in terms of trade relations. Um, I think that uh, we're now seeing the downside of having uh, fully integrated into the international economy uh, a big, powerful country that does not share our values. Uh, That would be China. Uh, People say to me all the time, well, we have a lot of countries in the international economy that don't share our values. Yeah, but not ones of the size and importance of China. Uh, You know, in the old Cold War, uh, the Soviet Union was a military giant at least we thought, uh, watching them in Ukraine, I'm not so sure, but they they were militarily uh, significant. They were a a, uh, technological and economic midget. Now we have in China, military, technological, and economic giant. And that is a different kind of challenge. And so I think going out there now, Uh, the idea that it's just kind of one big international economy and you kind of find your place in it, you find the place for cheap labor, you find the supply chains that work best for you. I think we're going to go now to more of a regional uh, and even values-based approach where people will say, I want reliable, uh, safe, Uh, supply chains, I want reliable, safe communications. So I don't want Huawei in my uh, telecommunications network. And uh, I think you're seeing significant decoupling and it's probably uh, going to happen. We're not going to see, I think, investment in technology, frontier technologies by American companies in China and vice versa. So it's, you know, the kind of integrationist, uh, globalist narrative uh, really did dominate international politics for quite a long time to come. And I would just make one other point about the broad implications of this. We haven't actually tried anything and I'd be interested in John Cochran's thoughts as an economist. We haven't really tried anything like completely pulling a major economy out of the international economy. You know, we actually isolated North Korea, who cares? They sell, uh, you know, counterfeit, right. Yeah, at, at counterfeit, uh, dollars, counterfeit um, cigarettes, and and nuclear parts. Uh, the Iranians, well, that's oil and dates and rugs. But the Russian economy: twenty percent of all titanium, forty uh, percent along with Belarus of all potash, thirty uh, percent along with the Ukrainians of all wheat. Uh, we haven't ever had this experiment where the 12th to 15th largest economy in the world is now isolated from it. And I'm not sure that we will fully understand the implications of that for some time to come. So I think there are some really long-term implications here.
4: I'd just like to roll up on a couple of the points, finishing with this last one, Um, because we left hanging one, I think, very important one. Uh, The idea, just go back to this ends on whether it's Ukraine's decision, so I'm an economist. Decisions are made subject to budget constraints. Uh, it's not what you want; it's what you can get. And I think Zelensky, what Zelensky's uh, decision is, what his aims are, uh, if he had the uh, if, if he had the Second Cavalry with H.R. McMaster working for him, his decision about what he wants would be a lot different. <laughs> uh, this war ends. With how much we're willing to supply them. Uh, depends a lot on where this war ends. And so I don't think we can just punt and say, this is Zelensky's uh, decision. And in fact, I don't think it's right to. Uh, We talked a lot about this being important because we want a safer world. We want, we want a world in which people don't invade other countries. Uh, Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, they want a world where other countries don't invade. They have a big interest in it. And we've been talking about how we want to send a signal to Xi Jinping. Zelensky doesn't give a damn about Xi Jinping in Taiwan. Uh, So letting him decide where this war ends puts in in his uh, lap, the question of what signal gets set to Xi Jinping, I don't think we can avoid uh, this. Uh, you know, our role in in how much it sends, just by how much we're willing to supply. Uh, do we do we give him the tools to declare that that uh, status quo ante was 2014, not last February, and that no, uh, you, you get little green men, but you don't get armed invasions. I think that would be dangerous. So I I, I think we can't avoid facing our decision about where this ends. Now back with this. Uh, I, I was bottling that up, but the conversation went on to China. Uh, I, I, I'm still the, uh, I think a world that that abandons globalization, internationalization would be a disaster. Uh, a lot of our economic growth, uh, a lot of, uh, of the, the well-being we have depends on uh, this trade. China depends on trade with us more than we depend on trade with China. The force that... You know, when China thinks about do we invade Taiwan, the fact that all of its international trade would then be cut off surely must uh, be sitting on their minds. And if we create an economy where China is like North Korea, Fully cut off. Well, then, you know, that makes it easier for them to invade Taiwan, as well as dramatically impoverishes us. Remember, 99% of international trade is not a microprocessor that you need to build an F-16. 99% of international trade is Game Boys. (laughs) It's it's consumer goods that are produced cheaply. It's furniture. Uh, It's it's umbrellas. It's stuff that can be produced uh, more cheaply in China and Vietnam and Taiwan and so forth. Um, uh, so uh, I, I think uh, yes, we need to have a resilient supply chain for things that are critically important to military, for things that are critically important to the economy. Uh, certainly, uh, you, you know the energy disaster, which the, our administration is doubling down on the idea. Oh, we'll just build windmills, and that'll solve this. Absolutely right. But to say that we wanna go all on and isolate China and, uh, and, and empower the forces of protectionism and industrial policy in our country, that will impoverish us. That will be a, a force for, for China developing in, a, in its way that is, is much more dangerous. Uh, I think that that goes in a very uh, dangerous way. In fact, you know, I'll play historian. The last great year of globalization was the uh, eighteen eight was the one that ended in nineteen fourteen. And, and the uh, 20, 30 years after that were not happy 20, 30 years. Uh, but John,
1: so- John, let me be very clear. All right, I didn't say that that's a good world. No, you didn't, right. And uh, but we're we may be forced into that world. This may not completely be in our hands. Uh, The the first point that I would make is that you are absolutely right. Uh, If we wanna continue to sell umbrellas to China and assemble, Apple continues to assemble in China, I have no problem with it whatsoever. I'm a proponent of global trade because I do think that the American idea at the end of World War II that the international economy shouldn't be a zero sum game was absolutely the right idea. The problem is it takes two to tango, so to speak. And you have a China that uh, didn't play by the rules of that game. They, they stole intellectual property. They privileged national champions. Uh, they made it difficult for uh, companies. And by the way, they're no longer the low cost labor provider, any, eh, either. And so, uh, and when I watch uh, Xi Jinping, we'll see what happens to him in November. But this has become a very nationalist agenda. Just ask companies that do entertainment in China what they're being asked to promote in terms of Chinese communist values. And so whenever we talk about this, we have a tendency to talk about it as if it's all the cards are in the hands of the United States. If all the cards were in the hands of the United States, I think we could in fact find that sweet spot between not transferring to the Chinese the things that the PLA will need to to, uh, threaten the Indo-Pacific. But uh, it may well be that a lot of that uh, sweet spot Eludes us because the Chinese have other ideas. And um, County, I would just
3: I would just add also, he's he's on a on a mission to create this dual circulation economy, yes. Where he creates dependencies on our part that he can use against us, while he insulates himself from any kind of d- economic or financial disruption.
1: Yeah, and and I just make one one final point. Um, I I don't want to uh, isolate China. My point was Russia is isolated, and that's already a very yeah. big deal. Uh, But I I will say, uh, with China, we have to figure out what makes sense in terms of the remaining pieces of trade with China and the like, and what doesn't. And I think for a while, uh, we weren't really discerning about what we wanted to do. There, There is no way that Huawei should be in anybody's telecommunications network. It just shouldn't be the case. And so uh, we just have to be careful about how that uh, that integration looks going forward. That's but,
4: so I do think the the necessity for fairness in trade I think is overplayed. There's a lot of managed mercantilism in those forces. I'm not, and and I'm not. This isn't about you. It's about if if we endorse a strategic economic competition that in that unleashes force in the United States. For protectionism, industrial policy, and which is and, and and xenophobia, which I think are very damaging. I wasn't accusing
1: you of that. No, very no, no. Very I very agree, things. John. And I agree with you. Look, Let the, us the, say,
4: the, yeah, I'm sorry, sorry. I just wanted to finish the Russia. Right. You, you did mention the Russia thing. I think this points to the necessity of ending this war and getting back to a situation where uh, Russia can go back to being the world's gas station, hopefully with a little better environmental standards and providing the lithium and cobalt and stuff that we need. A, a vision that we're going to per- treat Russia as a pariah state for the next 20 years and cut it off from international trade is, is an awful vision. So here, here I'm, Neil was calling for ending the war. I, I'm calling for the ending the war on slightly different terms, but I think that has to be our goal, not not just carving up the world. And there's the North Koreas and the Irans and the Venezuelas, which we try to cut well, off forever until we call on them to
1: pump them. John, I agree, but again, you know, there's always a tendency to think that you get the world that you wish. And sometimes there are other players. So yeah. it's very hard for me to imagine the reintegration of the Russian economy as long as Vladimir Putin is president of the country. Okay, I'd
0: like to go to Neil now. You know, there's a piece in NBC News today, uh, some unnamed West Wing staffers are dumping on the president. They're saying that basically, we're tired of cleaning up his messes. And I think this is kind of classic. Condi knows what this is like. She was in a rough midterm election when she was in Washington, and I think they see the writing on the wall, and these are people of Washington who want to stay in Washington and maintain their livelihood, so you throw the president under the bus, but they do have a point, Neil. Joe Biden goes in front of the cameras. He talks to reporters, and trouble ensues, and Condi, this is day 115 of the president not doing a one-on-one with a journalist, which is kind of like Tiger Woods going a year without making the cut on the tour. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, But Neil, the president goes on the other side of the Pacific Rim, and he is asked the question about what happens if Taiwan is invaded. And he says, we will engage. But here's
2: the question, Neil, what should he have said? Well, the dangerous thing about Taiwan is that we have a rather uh, tried and tested uh, formula of strategic ambiguity that goes back 50 years. Uh, It goes all the way back uh, to talking of Henry Kissinger, uh, Richard Nixon's famous trip uh, to China, and a change in U.S. policy that uh, that essentially uh, said we we now will accept uh, China's claim that that Taiwan is, in fact, a province uh, of the People's Republic. Uh, However, there was an important rider added by congressional legislation in 1979. We won't accept a violent change in the de facto autonomy of Mm. Taiwan. And that strategic ambiguity has served the United States pretty well uh, over half a century. Uh, Notice Taiwan, rather against the expectations of the Nixon administration, not only survived uh, as a de facto autonomous state, but actually became a very successful, flourishing democracy. It's one of the big success stories uh, of the last 50 years. Uh, But it meant that the Chinese could never be quite sure what we would do if they decided to assert their uh, claim over Taiwan by force. Now, I think we should stick with strategic ambiguity, Mm -hmm. and it's dangerous for us to make unambiguous commitments uh, to Taiwan, uh, because if we do that we do set ourselves uh, potentially on the path to collision with China. And one of the things I agreed with very much when I listened to uh, Henry Kissinger last week was his point that a confrontation between the United States and China would be a catastrophic event for the reason that Condi said earlier, the scale of the resources on both sides and the formidable military technology that both sides can now deploy. It's in many ways a scarier Cold War than Cold War One. If it turns into a hot war. So I think Joe Biden made uh, a genuine slip, but it's not a slip inconsistent with the direction of travel in U.S. policy going all the way back to the Trump administration. But the Trump and Biden administrations have been more explicitly supportive of Taiwan than their predecessors. Uh, and it's odd to me, actually, that the Biden administration has taken this policy on and run with it. But I think there's a reason for that. And the reason is that this this administration is quite hawkish on China. In some ways, I think it's more hawkish than the Trump administration was. My sense is that if Trump had been reelected, he would have sought to do a deal with Xi Jinping quite soon after that, because I don't think Trump was particularly committed to the ideological dimensions or indeed even the geopolitical dimensions of this. He was interested in the trade war, full stop, uh, end of paragraph. So we're in a rather odd situation in which the Biden administration is more hawkish on China than Trump was. And it, it tends to broaden out its hawkishness, uh, whether it's on Taiwan or Xinjiang, on a range of other issues. Part of what I was struck by as I listened to Kissinger last week was this point that we are driving Russia into China's arms. It's not that Russia has being cut off from the world. It's been cut off from the Western world, from the the world that can impose the sanctions that we essentially have have imposed. China's not doing that. China's not gonna cross certain lines that I think we've drawn uh, fairly clearly. It's not gonna supply weaponry, as far as I can see, to Russia. Uh, But it's certainly uh, going to trade with Russia. And this takes us back again 50 years because what was the great Kissinger principle? That the United States should be closer to Russia and China than they are to one another. We, we've completely reversed that. They're now very close indeed together. And, and in a way, one of the unintended consequences of policy uh, of the sanctions regime is to drive Russia even closer Neil, uh, to China you know, than it was before. Can I
3: comment on this before, before we go to Condi here? Hey, I mean, we're all nostalgic for triangular diplomacy, but it's dead, Neil. It's just, I mean, it's just dead. And it's dead because of Russia and Xi Jinping, not us driving Russia into the arms. I mean, they met each other 32 times. Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. They professed their enduring love for one another just prior to the Olympics and said that our partnership has no limits. You know, Putin did Xi Jinping a solid. You know, by by delaying the offensive against Ukraine, the renewed offensive against Ukraine until after the the Olympics, uh, Xi Jinping and and Putin essentially declared victory over the free world just prior to the Olympics with their new announcing the new era of international relations. So I think. Triangular diplomacy is dead, not because of anything we've done, but because they've made their bed together. And I think we have an opportunity not to separate them, but to glue them together, to hang Ukraine around both of their necks like a lodestone and maybe even just win Cold War II uh, soon after it began. I mean, I, I, I think the opposite approach is what's relevant today, although obviously the approach to triangular diplomacy in the context of the Cold War made sense. Uh, during the Kissinger-Nixon period. But, kind of, I'd love to hear your view on this. And this is um, sort of a grand strategic implication, right? Of right, and,
1: and I'm more where uh, HR is on this. You know, I think one of the problems with great geostrategic thinkers that think in a more realist version, you know, that what countries consist of doesn't matter that much. It's really their assets and their power and balance of power is sometimes ideology does matter. And these are two authoritarians who actually kind of love each other because they have the same view of internal politics, not just because they have the same view of the world, but they actually do believe that authoritarians will dominate the future, not a decadent Western liberalism that's gone down the path of diversity, equity, and inclusion and all of these things. I mean, they have a whole uh, narrative about the West uh, that glues them together. And so to HR's point, again, it's the point I was making, John, sometimes these things happen despite your policy, not in, because of your policy. And I think Putin and Russia, kind, uh, Putin and Xi Jinping kind of deserve each other at this point, because I do wonder what Xi Jinping is thinking about having tied himself to a homicidal maniac who is bringing uh, sanctions down across the world? And indeed, the Chinese are being very careful. Chinese banks are not actually violating the sanctions. Uh, Chinese companies are not rushing into Russia. And I would make just one other point. You know, uh, there's no more xenophobic country vis a vis Asians than the Russians. And so there may be kind of natural limitations to this bromance. But the idea that somehow we have the ability to separate them, I think, is is at this uh, this stage mistaken. I will say one thing that I am concerned about. I I think that the use of our our Treasury sanctions in this way, which I agree we had to do, will lead others to want to look to an alternative to the dollar for for dollar-denominated transactions because nobody's going to want to be put in the position that the Russians are. You, you uh, sanction the Russian central bank and the Russians basically have to barter because they can't use the financial system. And the Chinese have already, as we've done some work on this in Hoover, they've done a lot of work on digital currencies. Uh, they have tried to get people to, there it is, the report on digital currencies. <laughs> they've tried to get people to do uh, transactions in uh, Yuan rather than in the dollar. And so that's the one place that I think uh we have to be careful and when we were thinking about using these 311 sanctions against the central bank of iran it was hank paulson who said be very careful that you don't start to undermine the dollar not so much as the reserve currency because that brings a lot of other things into play contracts rule of law etc but dollar denominated transactions i do think that there's some chance that the chinese will want to experiment now with uh can they find quote legal ways uh, to get around these sanctions, uh, through getting people not to use uh, these, use the dollar.
4: To right. chime mm-hmm. in, it's it's not so much the dollar itself as the architecture, the SWIFT system, for, the because yes. you can transfer uh, rubles or yuan or Swiss francs or whatever just as easily as dollars. But it's that that we we control that architecture of how you send money amount. and that's the danger. Uh, but I want to go back to Bill's original question because this this is really back for Condi. Um, which was about, about Biden's statements and strategic ambiguity and so forth. I think it was Teddy Roosevelt who said, speak softly and carry a big stick. Right. Uh, we seem to be doing the opposite involving a lot of speaking loudly. And I presume you have the same frustration I have of America making uh, loud statements uh, of, what we're, uh, of our goals. Putin must go, we want to weaken Russia, uh, as we have before, lines in the sand, Um, uh, Afghanistan will become a democratic place. Uh, and then, you know, six months, two years later, eh, we, we don't care that much about that sort of thing. So, uh, and, 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 Taiwan, are we really going to fight? Can we win? Are we going to fight a war in Taiwan? That, you know, one of the questions is not, do we want to, but is this one more aspiration that, that we don't care about? On the other hand, we talk loudly not only do we make promises that are uh, that we don't and get tend to keep, and that we will we will bail out on later, we keep talking loudly about what we won't do. uh le- You know, taking ambiguities off the table in the other direction. No, there won't be a no-fly zone. No, we won't give them anti-ship missiles. Uh, all sorts of things we won't do. That this must be as as, as a professional in diplomacy. <clears throat> I, I presume your advice would be: be like Teddy Roosevelt, and just shut up for a while. <laughs> only say things you really mean. I mean, if, if you're we guarantee the territorial integrity of Ukraine. We started out with that one. There was a lovely promise that we just keep.
1: Yeah. Well, Neil's point that uh we've I, I really absolutely think we should never have said something about uh weakening Russian. We should never have implied regime change in, in Russia. I think those absolutely. were those were mistakes. That but made I think escalation so much more yes, dangerous. Exactly. I, I wouldn't keep talking about. What we won't do in terms of weapon systems, in terms of the battlefield, because uh, actually, uh, our best our best work right now will be to make sure, as I've said, when Ukraine does decide to go to the negotiating table, that they're in the best possible situation, and that may require us to do things that right now we're not willing to do. Are we really going to sit and let the Russians, with the entire world saying they should not, uh, Im- they should not quarantine? Uh, the wheat uh, exports from Ukraine. Are we just going to let that happen? And I'll say one other thing. You know, they've made not very good use of the UN. I know we all, particularly conservatives, we all kind of roll our eyes when we talk about the UN. But uh, you could, I think, force the Russians' hand on something like the worldwide food program problem that they're that they are costing uh, the whole world by uh, their essential naval blockade uh, of Ukraine. So I don't think we've played all the cards that we could, and I completely agree, be quiet. Bob Gates, uh, our my colleague um, who is defense minister, or defense secretary for both, uh, uh, yeah, shows my European training, but uh, defense secretary for both uh, uh, George W. Bush and then for a while in the Obama administration has a little sign on his desk, it says, never pass up an opportunity to shut up. And I actually think that in diplomacy, sometimes it's better to be quiet and let your actions speak. So it's, it's been said that I could use that sign on my desk. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, I want to press it.
4: Now people don't do this because they're dumb. Uh, it strikes me that there's the strong, you, You're why are you doing it? Why are you saying things like this? Well, Why are you saying we're gonna take our troops back in six months when we all know that's a stupid thing to do? Well, you're doing it for domestic political reasons. Uh, You're trying to get a little bit ahead in the polls and, and that it betrays a, a great weakness that you think it's so important to score a few domestic political points at what must be, it must be obvious, you've been there, that, that this is a terrible idea from the point of view of our negotiation, but it's so important for us to get a little blip in the polls for a while. I, I think of, uh, of Eisenhower. Yeah, can, I, can I say
3: something just quickly, just because you bring up such an important point, John. You know who didn't do that was George W. Bush and Secretary Rice on yes. Iraq in 2006 to 2007 with the decision for the surge, which was absolutely the right decision to make and cut completely against what, what made sense from a domestic political perspective. So I just wanted to point that out. I think that is an example of principled leadership that is often uh, overlooked. And Condi, thank you for your role yeah. in, that, in that period of time.
4: Well, there's your own
3: own role in
1: that, I just have to say.
4: Perhaps there's there's an ability to have an administration that says, you know, we're just going to, we're worried about the election. You know, let's at least put it off for a couple of years. And, and let this thing bear fruit, but we see- well, I,
1: I, I have to tell a little funny vignette and I know Bill wants us to move on, but I just it's just such a funny moment because uh, Steve Hadley, the, the Deputy National Security Advisor at the time, and I was National Security Advisor, and we had had a National Security Principles meeting and we talked about what we might do in uh, this particular case. And we went to President Bush and we said, Mr. President, we think the best thing to do with this, but we don't know if you can handle that politically. And he looked at us and he said, did you two ever run for anything? He <laughs> said, tell me the best to, thing to do in foreign policy. I'll handle the politics. I think that's the way you want the president to be. Can One last
2: re- thought re- before we move on, Bill. This has been a very high-level discussion, but let's not forget that things are happening on the ground as we speak in Ukraine. The, the Battle of the Donbass is an extraordinary bloody battle. Yes. Uh, Zelensky just conceded the uh, the kind of casualties up to 100 a day that Ukrainian forces are, are suffering. And in fact, the direction of travel has been uh, slowly uh, and unfortunately uh, very painfully in Russia's favor. Uh, it could be that Ukrainians launch a, a successful counteroffensive, perhaps in uh, the area around Kherson, but this war is not over. And those who proclaimed prematurely, in my view, Ukrainian victory need to take a look at the map. And think about where this goes. And domestic politics is a key variable in Putin's mind, because he knows that if he can string this out, our attention will wander and the unity of the West will diminish, especially if he can string this out into the winter, uh, when suddenly the Europeans will take stock of just how expensive it is for them to give up uh, on Russian gas uh, and oil, which they've now pledged to do.
1: Yeah, uh, I completely agree, Neil. But I've always said the Russians could win the East at any time that they wished. Right. Uh, the supply lines are short. Uh, this is what they do. Uh, their problems are. I th- I agree with you. I think uh, premature declarations of victory for the Ukrainians. Nobody. I never believed that. And the Ukrainians are suffering terribly, which is why I think Zelensky may decide at some point that he wants to quote, sue for peace or Putin may decide that having won the East, he will sue for peace. We don't know. But let's not underestimate also what's happening on the Russian side. We know that the toll on their military is extreme and they can't uh, launch a general mobilization because Putin knows that this war, despite all of his propaganda, is actually not popular at home. There have been a series of bombings across Russia at military commissariats, which is where people are recruited. That says to Putin, don't even think about trying to call up more troops. And so what he's got to do, uh, this is really HR's business, but I think what he's got to do is try to win someplace and redeploy. Because at this point, they're kind of running out of manpower. They decided to accept uh, people over the age of 40. Uh, for the armed forces. So yes, the Ukrainians are, I think, at this point not winning, but I think we would be mistaken to say, well, the Russians are winning, and therefore uh, we we need to push them to the table.
3: There are also reports, and I, you know, I, of course, I have to guard against cheerleading for the Ukrainians. That's a uh, tendency I have, but but uh, you know, I, I think that this idea of, of will, you know, the, the the will of units to. Uh, To fight is immensely important to maintain it on the Ukrainian side, and to disintegrate it on on the Russian side. I mean, that's really what the Ukrainians are trying to do, and and I think these reports of, of mutinies within Russian formations and the very very high losses of of junior officers in an army that doesn't have a non commissioned officer corps, I think get to the really the Russians' ability to to fight and sustain an offensive. But as Condi said, I mean, they're going back to what they can do which is massive bombardments uh, that that don't take a a lot of sophisticated fire and maneuver or combined arms uh, operations. That's why some of these capabilities are so important to get to the Ukrainians. We had Ben Hodges on Condi, who was the former United States Army Europe commander and knows Ukrainians very well. He made a really important point uh, during that Goodfellas. He said what's super important now is the logistics ability to get these weapons into the hands of Ukrainians and ensure that they can be sustained in terms of ammunition and maintenance, and they can be operated effectively uh, through 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 training and so forth. And I think he's absolutely right about that. So we, we're, I know, we're a lot of weapons are going there, but where are they going once they get there? How much assistance can we provide in making sure they're integrated, especially these counter battery capabilities, for the ability to go after uh, effectively the Russians' uh, artillery and rocket launchers and And uh, and I think that could be really decisive, you know, in in terms of taking away what the remaining element of Russian strength, which is just this massive uh, artillery and fires capability.
0: So, Connie, when we do Goodfellas in person, Neil very generously segues because I think he can see the pain, tortured look on my face as I'm trying to move the conversation along. And I hope that's not coming through the screen. But that said, I'd like to shift back to the United States and talk about uh, the tragedy in Texas. Con, you might remember there was a magazine years ago called Spy Magazine, and they did satires on politics and culture, and they once had a feature, very clever, it was called "Cookie Roberts is the Center of the Universe, and what it did was it point out that Cookie Roberts, the late Cookie Roberts, she probably interviewed you in Washington, she, um, she was an ABC political correspondent, PBS, before that she was married to Steve Roberts, a New York Times correspondent, her brother Tommy Boggs was a big lobbyist in DC. Her parents, uh, Hale and Liddy Boggs, were members of Congress. And so a Spy just did this elaborate chart just showing all the places in America these people went into. I look at the shooting in Texas Condi, and I see that as the center of a very complicated, very thorny policy universe in this regard. Yes, we can talk about the Second Amendment. We can talk about the vast amount of guns in the country, what guns we should and should not have, who should have guns at what age. We can talk about desensitized kids. Is it too much call to arms? We can talk about uh, mental health, certainly, which I know John is passionate about, um, why kids feel the need to do this, young boys. Um, We can also uh, segue into another tragedy, Condi. I don't know if you saw the story, but kids in America now um, die more often from gun violence. than They do cars or cancer. And if you look inside that number, Condi, it's very interesting. There's one specific demographic, and that's non-Hispanic black youths, that's really driving it, which takes us, Condi, into a whole other rabbit hole of what it is to grow up black in America in terms of family, in terms of faith, in terms of education, economic opportunity. If Dr. Rice were asked to do triage on this situation, what would she prioritize? Where would she start?
1: Yeah, well, Bill, let me just uh, amend one thing, what it means to grow up black and poor
0: in America. Mm Yes, yes.
1: Because to grow up black and educated in America is a completely different thing. Thank thank you for clarifying. And yeah, no, but the reason I I mentioned that is that that's one of my triages. Yes. Uh, We have really got to make sure that people have opportunity. And right now, if you're trapped in a failing neighborhood school, uh, you aren't gonna read by the time you're third grade. That means you're not gonna read. And then what are you gonna do? You're gonna go to the streets. Uh, the, the, the prison population uh, among black males is a national disgrace. And so uh, I start with the question of opportunity, but that's a long-term proposition. It's not a short-term fix. And maybe I'll come back to Goodfellas someday and talk about the importance of school choice and giving poor parents a chance to do something for their kids that, that makes sense. But to the gun violence, I just want to be clear on something. You know, I've been known to be a defender of the Second Amendment, and it comes partly out of my experience in Birmingham, where in 62 and 63, uh, Bull Connors, Eugene Bull Connors police were not your friends. And my parents, my father in particular, and his friends got their guns together. They went to the head of the community, and they scared off white night Riders. And so uh, I think they were acting in what the founding fathers intended, the well-organized militia to protect themselves against the state, because the Birmingham police certainly weren't going to protect your families. That said, I think we ought to be looking at all of these aspects. I I, I don't believe Americans really need to have military weapons. Do they really need to have magazines that are rapid fire? Um, obviously, uh, we... Maybe we do need to think about more in the way of of uh, background checks and and the red flag laws that uh, would flag people who really shouldn't have guns. Maybe the age should be 21. You know, I was reading a very interesting story about uh, uh, former governor Rick Scott in Florida who passed some quite significant gun control uh, laws in what is a very red state. And so I hope we can step back and say what makes sense in terms of uh, gun laws, but consistent with the spirit of the second amendment, because we can't start deciding that there are just certain amendments that in the modern age we will throw out. Uh, The constitution is a whole for a reason. And so uh, that's a conversation we need to have. And then we clearly have to do something about disaffected, Uh, alienated uh, particularly young men. Uh, And uh, before they get to the point that they are doing this thing, what is happening to them uh, in the schools uh, with this young man had a terrible family circumstance. Where was Child Protective Services when he was 11 or 12 years old? It seems to me that this entire system is broken and uh, what we're seeing is unfortunately the symptoms of it. And if we just treat the symptoms without going to what some of these root causes are, I think we're going to have a, a terrible situation for, for a long time to come and it's, it's pretty bad now. And by the way, it's not just mass shootings, it's what, what's happening in the streets of Chicago uh, on a, a practically nightly basis.
2: It cannot be the case that this uh, Second Amendment was designed to allow Salvador Ramos, an 18-year-old with an obviously very disturbed mind, uh, to uh, acquire a semi-automatic AR-15 rifle, uh, walk into a school uh, and kill 21 people, 19 of them kids. I, I have a fourth grader in this in this house. Uh, and the reason he's in this house is that uh, we're, we're protecting his classmates from COVID Uh, More effort seems to go into protecting kids from a disease uh, that, in fact, uh, predominantly kills the elderly than goes into protecting them uh, against uh, a completely crazy and dysfunctional uh, situation in this country. Mental illness can only explain a part of the problem. There are crazy people in all countries, Uh, but only in America can can crazy 18-year-olds get hold of weapons as powerful as that. We don't need to revise the constitution. We don't need another amendment to fix that problem. As Condi says, we need to identify uh, what it is that made that possible and stop saying over and over again, this can't be fixed politically. If we can't fix this politically, it gets hard for me as a father uh, of two small boys to, to feel that I live in a sane country. It's absolutely extraordinary that our political system despite a succession of massacres like this, is unable to address the ease with which this and many other disturbed young people, because this is a pattern, it's not like this just happened, can get hold of incredibly powerful firearms. Uh, Until we address that issue, it's going to make the United States look uh, like a crazy country to the rest of the world.
4: I, I, I want to be grumpy about this one. I think we're doing our our readers a disservice. I, I think Bill, we, we fought about this by email ahead of time. By centering it on the Texas thing, we're giving in to. So the media made a big merit narrative. This was a tragedy, indeed, uh, as a plane crash is a tragedy. Uh, but the media made it instantly a narrative about gun control, and we the good fellows and and our and our boss. We we don't uh, comment, every time there's a hurricane, we don't comment about climate policy and that's what's happening. Uh, There's a tragedy, bing, we've been through this time and yeah, the gun control debate. I think Condi brought up the important facts. I feel terribly for the families in Texas, but I also feel terribly for the tens of thousands of children who are being slaughtered every day on the streets of say Chicago or San Francisco. Um, Many of them disproportionately black, poor minority kids. Those are just as tragic, even though they never get reported in the news. They are being killed by guns. What kind of guns? By handguns, by illegal handguns that are already illegal. You're not allowed to own a handgun in the city of Chicago. There were 50 shootings over Memorial Day in the city of Chicago, all of them already illegal handguns. And yet the same people who want us to pass more and more laws are unwilling to enforce the laws we have against illegal handguns. Uh, The the stop and frisk is now gone. Uh, Many cities are not prosecuting uh, uh, people who are, you you have to take people who are caught with illegal guns and do something about them, not just send them back out on the street again. If you want to take this seriously, Seriously, what's the This is like the, the famous city who had a, a a crash on a bridge with a 50 mile an hour speed limit because someone was going 100 miles an hour and drunk. It said, okay, we'll lower the speed limit to 25. Uh, you know, passing laws that we're not enforcing is, is not. Wrong. The, the, uh, the, uh, the military weapons, I, I, I wanna hear about guns from the guy here who knows about guns, but the military weapons thing is irrelevant. Actually, my understanding is if you wanna shoot up a school, a shotgun would be far, far more useful or a whole bunch of handguns. These are simply rifles designed for long distances, not short distance with a bunch of plastic on them that makes crazy young men feel better about them. There are 400 million guns in the United States. Once a year, there's a school shooting. So the safety of, you know, how many guns per year get used in a school shooting? One in 400 million. That just just to, to focus on the gun is, is I think, a complete mistake here. Yes, it would be, of course, it's crazy that disturbed 18-year-olds uh, should be able to buy them. But you know why? All the background checks aren't working. All the current systems aren't working. All these guys say on the, on the internet where they're going to go, what they're going to do. Why aren't the police looking at that? Well, because... We're now having situations where 20, 30% of young people are reporting mental illness. That's in the one in 100 million things as well. So I think focusing on the school shooting is just, it's a terrible thing. But uh, this is a tiny, tiny fraction of the number of kids who are getting shot every year in, in the school shootings. And I think we should be focusing on the actual problems and, and feel good passing, hand, uh, passing more rules that we don't uh, enforce on, on, on automatic, on, on kinds of weapons. It's just our job is to do quantitatively important policies. Let me ask it this. way: Let's pass everything that Biden has talked about. How is that, how many, how much is that going to reduce the number of children who get shot every year, or even the number of actual uh, school shootings that go on? It's insignificant. So let's talk about serious policies that are going to make it serious. And, and Condi had it. We, there's a problem of families here. There's a problem of both white and black, our uh, underclass, if you will. It starts with 70, 80, 90% uh, uh, out of wedlock childbirth. I mean, already there's there's strikes against you. It goes on to schools, dysfunctional communities. Uh, that's really the the underlying problem.
2: John is banging his table, but, but HR, maybe you can explain to John, not only the difference between an AR-15 and a shotgun, but also the difference between a, a massacre and a plane crash. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. I, wait, wait, wait. Go, there's, go, massacres
4: every day. there's a massacre yeah. last weekend on the streets of Chicago. It like, was three John, times you, as you, big as the school shooting.
2: You, you, you're you, conflating things that are really quite distinct. And I think it's dangerous. It was especially, to me, disturbing that you, you called uh, what happened in Nivaldi similar to a plane crash or even a hurricane, and then uh, went into the the, the multiple shootings that are characteristic of 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 life and parts of, of uh, Chicago. Can I take the
1: take take the privilege of being the the in, invite a guest here to say something here? Look, I think John makes an important point. Uh, places like ours need to actually try to step back from the emotion of the moment, which is it, it you know, it's very difficult to do because when you see these tiny coffins and you think what these parents are going through and you think about the problem of the police response and what was really going on there. uh, But at some point, we have to step back and we have to start asking ourselves, what will the data tell us about what might actually work? Uh, You know, I would like to I don't know if we will one day do it at Uber, but I would really like to see. Do red flag warnings work? What would make red flag warnings work? Uh, it, would it matter if you change the age to 21, not 18? Uh, what about uh, how one is notified that somebody within within our problems of civil, our, our concerns about civil liberties, that somebody is notified that this is somebody who's writing about going and killing uh, young people. And by the way, kills his grandmother first. Uh, something went, woefully wrong here. Uh, I understand the emotion. Um, We do have constitutional issues. I believe that we do. We cannot simply set aside. But it shouldn't be, to Neil's point, it shouldn't be beyond uh, the possibility of of humankind and smart people to have policy discussions that uh, try to take us to what we know about what has been done, what has or has not worked, and then to begin to look at what we might do.
3: Yeah, I, I just don't think I can add anything to this. I mean, I'm just like all of you. I'm just sick about it, you know, and and uh, and when I think of uh, you know, about really anything we could do, we have to be able to trace it back to the to the cause and me- and measure the effect, obviously. But, you know, I, I just see it as a complete breakdown in community as well. Right. I mean, that, how come nobody knew that that that, uh, that that he was capable of this inhumanity and and provided any kind of warning? And, you know, I think it's related to some of the other issues we've talked about on Goodfellas, you know, the. You know the the the, uh, uh, the effect of social media, uh, for example, and the fact that you know people are better connected to one another than ever electronically and digitally, but more distant from one another
2: socially and and emotionally. Um, so all I, I mean, of those I, things are true in the United Kingdom. Yeah. They're true all over the world. But, but, but the United you know, States you know, we has are, a peculiar but, profile here. You can, you know, and it's not you know. that I'm too close to this. Maybe the reason that I'm taking this position is that I'm further away from it. From the vantage points of anybody who grew up outside the United States, this is a truly astonishing state of affairs. I don't think Maureen Dowd is entirely wrong to talk you know, of this you know, as a kind of strange human sacrifice. Why on earth do we tolerate a succession of massacres like this, they don't happen in this way on this scale and with this frequency also, anywhere Neil, else in the if developed I, Neil,
1: world. Neil, if I, if I may, again, to take my privilege is not always being with you, <laughs> uh, the United States is not Great Britain. The United States is not Norway. This is a big, complicated, diverse, federalized country that has a different history, a different set of problems, and we'll have a different set of solutions. And unless we recognize that the United States is probably the most complex country on the face of the earth. By the way, I think the only place that even begins to look a little bit like us is Brazil with its interesting ethnic mix. Uh, we're not going to solve it by doing what Britain did or doing what Norway did. We have to have a uniquely American solution to this. I completely agree with you. We need American solutions. But I, I fear that it's not going to just start with saying uh, gun control, gun control, gun control. That, that probably is part of the solution, but it's not the entire solution. We've got to get at the base of some of our other major problems as well.
4: I just want to add, Neil, uh, I com- actually completely agree with you, but the so, the actual problem by a factor of 100 or more is the carnage of, of already illegal small handguns, not the carnage of, of big looking assault rifles in school shooting. And, and we could you know there's a hundred to one there on how many people are being. And, and so let's let's do something about that. There's, there's the kid, there's the society and there's the gun but 100 to one, the gun problem is uh, handguns that are already illegal and not in, not doing anything about that.
0: Guys, I'm getting a cue from our producer that it's time to wrap. Condi, uh, it has been a joy to have you on. Clearly, there are a lot of things we can get into. I'd like to continue this conversation. I, for one, like to continue talking about the concept of student-athletes. I might be outnumbered on this panel on that one, but <laughs> I'm passionate about that, but please come back.
1: I'd love to. Thanks very much. And, and by the way, thanks to... The good fellows, and to you, Bill. For I think creating something that everybody is proud of at Hoover and everybody enjoys. So, thanks a lot.
0: By the way, Condi, there was the point this morning. We weren't going. Sh- we were not sure we we're going to have at least two of these good fellows, and you were about to become a good fellow. And I think that's probably far cooler than having a green jacket at vest.
1: You've got it. <laughs> thanks. All right. Well, that
0: is a wrap on our season. Two notes I'd like to close with. First of all, uh, the death of Ray Liotta, the actor who died tragically at age 67. He is, of course, a cast member of the movie Goodfellas. Not Goodfellas, but Goodfellas. What do you do? I'm a construction Not that we stole that concept, but uh, Neil Ferguson, he is the character Henry Hill, who is, of course, asked by Joe Pesci, do you think I'm funny? Uh, we got to get Steve Cockin on the show, by the way, speaking of that. Uh, Secondly, uh, this is our last episode of the season. We're not going to be completely disappearing for the summer. We'll be back from time to time. Easy way to keep track of us. Subscribe to this show. And when you do, please rate, review us, and say a few nice words about us. Give us feedback. Give us ideas of what you'd like to hear about as well. So on behalf of the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, HR McMaster John Cochran, our special guest today, Condoleezza Rice. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for watching. Have a great summer.
3: If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring HR McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.